All right, we're in our study of the doctrine of hell, and we have definitely hit a nerve with someone out there in the world of the computer. We've hit a major nerve with that, so the Lord is definitely using the truth to stir someone, so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word and for your people who are out today. We pray that you would bless our time tonight, and we pray that you would give us a real understanding of this doctrine and also a real burden to communicate truth. May people that study this doctrine and look at it realize the solemnity of what's at stake here in eternity, and may they respond to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on him and be saved, and we will thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. Now let's just recap a couple of things before we move on tonight, and that is this word hell. The word hell is an English word, It was used first about 8720 to cover a whole lot of words that describe this place of eternal punishment. We've gone through all of the different words that form the noun hell. I mean, the word hell is an English word that covers like Sheol, the lower chamber of Sheol. Hell covers that. It covers Hades, which was the burning fire place that's described. Then there was Abaddon, which was the noun that described destruction, eternal destruction, not annihilation, but destruction. Then you have the Abraham's bosom concept in there where you get the upper chamber where people are being comforted. Then you get the lower chamber of Sheol in which people are in torment. Then you had Tartarus, and Tartarus was the word that was the place where people were punished who were wicked. And then you had Gehenna, which was the place of burning fire. Then you have the lake of fire and brimstone. And again, you have the emphasis there on fire. And then you have the place of the abyss where there's weeping and the gnashing of the teeth. So you have all of those different words in the Bible that describe a place where people go for eternal punishment. And the English word that basically covers all of those words is the word hell. And we want to talk tonight a little bit about the theological basis for the existence of hell. Now, one of the reasons why people deny hell is because it doesn't seem to fit with their idea of God. And that's probably the biggest reason people would deny this. Most people have developed a concept of God based on how they feel and based on what they think God is like or should be like in view of the way they think. I mean, that is the concept that most people have of God. As Dr. Chaffer said, most people have uninstructed minds. So they revolt against the idea of a place of eternal condemnation. But the doctrine of hell is not rooted in the mind of man. The doctrine of hell is not rooted in the sympathies of man. In fact, man doesn't like this doctrine at all. Now, to determine what God is like and who God reveals himself to be, it can't be based on what a human thinks or feels. It has to be based on the written scriptures. I mean, to actually come to an accurate conclusion of what is God like when it comes to every particular topic or subject, you have to base that on the written scriptures. Our formation of information about God and eternal fire comes from the written scriptures, all of the written scriptures. You can't just pick a few. 
You have to take the whole counsel of God if you're going to form accurate doctrine. Now, the theological basis for the existence of hell comes down to an understanding of the perfect attributes of God. And we talk about the attributes of God. We're not talking about you just pick the ones you like. I mean, this whole idea of hell comes from the attributes of God and all of the attributes of God. And when one understands the attributes of God, I mean, when one understands all of the attributes of God, one realizes eternal punishment in hell and in fire is a reality. Now, most people create a God of their own minds. That's what they do. And as a result of that, they create a God of their own minds based on their limited knowledge or based on sentimental sympathy. I mean, they invent a God in their mind the way they want God to be in their way of thinking. God isn't like that. God doesn't operate like that. When God throws people into eternal fire, it'll be the right thing to do. In fact, when God throws people into eternal fire, it will be the best possible end for those who made a mockery of him, for those who made a mockery of his son, for those who made a mockery of his people, and for those who made a mockery of his word. God will have done right in pouring out eternal damnation. And no created being, whether it be human or angelic, has the right to question the sovereign creator. Now, the people who deny hell stress a couple of attributes of God. The attributes that they tend to stress if they don't believe in hell or they don't like hell and they don't want to believe in hell is the attribute of God's love and God's mercy. In fact, I like the name that Dr. Chafer gave to those people. He called them merciists, merciists. These merciists could be people who can be classified. A lot of people fall into this category from all different denominations and all different belief systems because they don't believe in eternal retribution. They don't believe that eternal punishment would be possible for a God because he's a loving God and a merciful God. But here's where the merciest missed the point. The merciest neglect 15 other attributes. I mean, if you want to just pick one or two attributes like love and mercy and build your case on there's our belief in God, then you're really shortchanging the truth because you have some other attributes other than just those two. And these merciists get so focused on their position, how could a God of love and how could a God of mercy allow this, that they totally neglect at least 15 other attributes that God has revealed about himself in the Bible. And the first attribute that he's revealed about himself is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And the holiness of God demands hell. I want you to go to Habakkuk, if you would, chapter 1, Habakkuk chapter 1. And I want to draw your attention to verse 13, because this is so important to see about God. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? You cannot look on wickedness with with favor. Most people have absolutely no concept or clue as to how evil sin is and how it affects God. 
They have no clue to this. They don't understand how holy God is. Now, there are different levels of God's holiness, different aspects to it. For example, you have the majestic holiness of God that we carefully study in theology proper, which is the doctrine of God, and God is set apart in majestic holiness apart from any other created being. I mean, when Moses was in the presence of God, he said, take off your shoes. You're not even worthy to be in the ground where God is. You're not even able to stand there. And when you go through the book of Revelation and you see the throne of God, it is majestic. I mean, there is a majestic holiness to God. You just don't walk up to his throne, to the majestic God who's a holy God, and just do what you want to do. God is separated by his holiness from every other thing. But there's another side to God. It's the judicial holiness of God. And the judicial holiness of God cannot and will not overlook sin. He can't do it. He can't just say, ah, let's just forget about this. Let's just let it go. His judicial holiness makes it impossible for him to do that. The judicial holiness of God demands that there's a penalty, demands that there's a payment for sin and provides the legal and judicial means of saving a sinner. I mean, Jesus Christ who's God's son, think about this now, because of sin, he has to die and suffer. Why? Because of the judicial holiness of God. That's why he has to come here and die. God has a judicial holiness side to him. He can't just say, oh, let's just forget about sin and we'll just overlook it and let it go. There has to be some remedy for this because of this amazing holiness of God. Now, I want to have us understand the holiness of God and the judicial nature of it from two passages of Scripture. One of them would be Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, we get a glimpse here as to just how holy God is here because in Psalm 22, we get the words of the Messiah who would suffer, and he cries out in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, and you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest, yet you are holy. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the Son of God talking here. But notice he brings out, in this you're holy. You're holy in forsaking me. Do you understand this? In other words, the holiness of God is actually involved in forsaking the Son of God when he's crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now go over to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. And here you see it with the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Mark chapter 15 and verse 34. And we read in Mark 15 and verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we are seeing here is the judicial nature of the holiness of God. God is so repulsed by sin. He cannot look upon sin. He has such a hatred for sin that in the judicial side of his holiness, he has to turn his back on his own son who's paying the price for the sin. I mean, at that moment when our sin is on the Son of God, God the Father has to actually turn his back on the Son of God because of the judicial nature of the holiness of God. 
So when you read terms like righteousness and redemption and you read terms like propitiation and justification, you're talking here about legal terms. Legal terms that have to do with the judicial side of the holiness of God. And this judicial side of the holiness of God means this. If you do not have your case legally settled before you leave this earth with this holy God who made an amazing provision for every sinner, his son took the full brunt of the judicial side of the holiness of God and paid for the sin so people can be saved. If a person does not have that case legally settled before they go into eternity, they're going to hell. They're going to hell and they're going to burn. God's judicial holiness demands that. And I'll tell you this, as Dr. Chafer said, the holiness of God will not vary in one degree. It will not bend in one degree. This is the holiness of God that's at stake here. He's not about to say, ah, let's just overlook the failure. Now, there are statements in the scripture that talk about this holiness and righteousness of God, which is the attribute that becomes the basis for hell. Let's go, for example, to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. And Joshua 24, and you'll notice in verse 19, we read Joshua 24, 19. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. He is a holy God. God cannot just overlook sin. He won't. He won't. If the judicial matters of sin in an individual's life are not settled through the cross work of Jesus Christ, they're going to hell. And God's holiness won't budge one inch on that. God's holiness will be part of that which is their sentence that puts them in there. Go over to Job 34. Job 34. And notice in verse 10, in Job 34 and verse 10, Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to do wrong. God is so holy, he can't be connected to wrong. God is so holy, he can't be connected to wickedness. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ was here, he understood this part of God. And here's what he said in John. Unless one is born again, you have to be reborn. You'll not see the kingdom of God. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 3. Unless a person is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? What are you going to see? You're going to see hell. If you're not born again, if you don't come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that judicial side of the holiness of God is going to put people into everlasting fire. And they're not going to get out of that. They're not going to be able to dodge that. They're not going to be able to dance around that. That's why now is the time for a person to believe on the Lord. God's love made an amazing provision that would save anyone from their sins in Jesus Christ. But they have to be willing to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. If they're not willing to do that, that holiness of God that put the Son of God on the cross, where he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, will be the same holiness that will cast one into hell. So you have the attribute of the holiness of God. So it's not just mercy. You have the holiness of God at stake here. Then, secondly, you have the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God demands hell. 
Righteousness demands judgment against evil. Let's go to, well, you're open to Job, so go over to Psalm chapter 9. Psalm chapter 9. And look at the statement here about God judging. Psalm 9 verse 4. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. This is the way God judges. Righteous judgment. In other words, God will always render righteous judgments in any context. Now, when he gets someone before him who has rejected the marvelous grace gift of his son, his precious son, and the person has said, I'm not going to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm going to believe what I want and behave the way I want and do what I want. When that person gets before God, righteous judgment will demand that person burn in fire. And they will burn in fire forever. God wouldn't be a righteous judge if he let the person off the hook when he made his own son die. So if this is the whole plan of God that my son has to die for that person and that person is making mockery of my son and doesn't give a hoot about what he accomplished for him, then that person himself will suffer the wrath of God. So the righteousness of God demands hell. The third attribute is the perfect justice of God demands hell. The justice of God demands hell. And look at verse 8 of Psalm chapter 9, verse 8. He will judge the world in righteousness and he will execute judgment for peoples with equity. The justice of God has an interesting aspect to it. Go over to Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, look at verse 2. Because his judgments are true and righteous... For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So the justice of God demands avenging. The justice of God demands that there is an avenging aspect to judgment. Now when it comes to the justice of God, you have remunerative and you have retributive justice both demand hell. God can't just overlook and forget about sin. He cannot overlook the fact that his son paid the total price to save a sinner. And he can't just overlook somebody that just says, I don't accept that. I don't want that. I don't want him in my life. He can't just say, okay, that's fine. We'll just let you live in eternity forever as some person out there in Never Never Land. What's on the line here is the justice of God that demanded his son die. And that was righteous justice that demanded that. Because he's solving this issue of how do you solve the issue of God's holy and he's righteous and he has to do what's just and he can't bend on that. His character won't let him bend on that. So how does he come up with a solution to resolve the sin problem with man? Of course, it's Jesus Christ. So someone who rejects Jesus Christ is going to experience the judgment of God. Now I want you to go to John chapter 5, if you would. John chapter 5, the Gospel of John. Now he says in verse 30 of John 5, Jesus, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. So we know the judgment of God has to be a just judgment. Jesus Christ is going to 
pour out just judgment because I do not seek my own but the will of him who sent me, so the will of the Father. Now drop down to verse, same chapter 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men. I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? You do not seek the glory that is from the one, the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who will accuse you is Moses, in whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. For if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, here's what Jesus is saying. He's basically saying, when it comes time for judgment, it's going to be a just judgment. And you wouldn't believe in me, so Moses will be your judge. What does that mean? The law. God will call up the law of Moses. He'll call up that law, as Paul would record in Romans 3, and he will call up a person's life. And it'll be like a replay. And he'll say, we'll just call up your life. We'll call up the law of Moses. Moses will be your judge. Now, the end result of the judgment, when the person is shown to be a sinner who would not receive Jesus Christ, and that's what the law is going to do. That's what Moses will do. It will show that everyone's a sinner, and it will show that person's a sinner. The end result will be that person will be cast into everlasting fire. You think about this. If God were to let a Christ rejecter live in any other place other than hell, he's not a just God. If God could allow some Christ rejecter to just get off the hook and just go live somewhere else other than everlasting fire, he's not a just God. In fact, he's a liar because he said that's where a person who rejects Christ is going to end up in everlasting fire. So the justice of God demands hell. Then fair judgment of God demands hell. And I want to bring out something here from John 3.36. As long as we're open to this text in John, John 3.36, where John writes, he who believes the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son, which does not believe in the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I want to talk about that little verse right there, and I want to talk about those verb tenses. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. The present tense would mean if one believes in the Lord, one believes in Jesus Christ, one continually, perpetually has eternal life. If one does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, one continually remains in a state of the wrath of God, and that wrath of God will be on that person forever and ever. They will abide in the wrath of God because the word abide or remain is a continual action verb. So what I would suggest is if a person believes on the Lord, they will forever and continually have everlasting life. If they do not believe on the Lord, they are going to continually experience the wrath of God. Now we learn from Revelation chapter 14 that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So we would conclude from this that the perfect justice of God demands hell. If someone rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, they are going to be sentenced to this place of everlasting fire. 
the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God is not going to let somebody off the hook. And fourthly, a fair judgment of God demands hell. I want you to go to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19 and verse 2, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Fair judgment demands that God settle scores. He must avenge. He must avenge those that made mockery of him and mockery of his word. Go to Leviticus 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Now, here is God laying out how judgments are to be made. In Leviticus 19 and verse 35, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Now, God stresses the fact that just decisions are to be made. He stresses that just decisions are to be made. So if someone rejects Jesus Christ and gets before him, who's made mockery of him and his word and his son, a just judgment demands that person burn. And God is perfectly just. His holiness is at stake. His justice is at stake. His righteousness is at stake. His truthfulness is at stake. So you can't just make this one attribution of mercy. Mercy and love. You have to include all of the attributes of God in forming your conclusions and convictions when it comes to it being legitimate that hell is a real viable place for people to go. It's a place that God would have to design for people who've made mockery of him. A fifth attribute is the sovereignty of God demands hell. The sovereignty of God demands hell. I mean, think about this. If a person can just get away with evil and sin and making mockery of God and his word and his son. And if a person can get away with that and go somewhere forever and be somewhere forever, then they beat God's sovereignty. And nobody's going to beat God's sovereignty. The fact of the matter is God is the supreme ruler over everything. He's in sovereign control over everything. And what he says in his word is going to be true. And if someone can actually get before the Lord and actually have him not put him in eternal fire when in fact he's made mockery of God and mockery of everything that the word of God teaches, then what he says is not true and somebody has beat the sovereignty of God. And nobody's going to beat the sovereignty of God. God's attribute of sovereignty demands that there is this punishment place that he sovereignly throws someone who has made mockery of him. A sixth attribute is proper Praise of God demands hell. Now, this is an interesting one. I'd like you to go to a couple of passages. The first one will be Psalm 9, Psalm chapter 9. And I want to look at verse 14 for just a second, that I may tell of all your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I may rejoice in your salvation. I may tell of all of your praises. Now, I want you to go over to Revelation 19, if you would. Revelation 19. And I want to put this in the context of the judgment of God because it is in the context of the judgment of God. In Revelation 19 and verse 2, we just looked at that verse. Because his judgments are true and righteous... 
For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he's avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And now notice verse 3. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now one of the arguments is, what will we do in eternity if we're in eternity and we realize that we have relatives or people we know who are burning in hell? What are we going to do? I mean, we're in eternity and we have people that we know that we cared about burning in hell. I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to praise God. We're going to praise God. We're going to worship God. We're going to praise God for grace that we're not there. And then we're also going to have a fuller perspective of these attributes of God and realize what these people did to get themselves in hell. And we're going to realize, well, they had every opportunity. Those people we knew, those relatives that we knew, they had every opportunity to respond to the grace of God. They didn't do it. They said, fooey on it. I don't need it. I'm not going to want it. So when we're in eternity, we're not going to be sitting there going, oh, man, that's really too bad. We're going to be worshiping the Lord because we realize that his majesty and his program has been sovereignly worked out. All of his attributes are at stake in this matter, and we're going to be praising God and thanking God we're there. I mean, we're going to be praising God for grace and just enjoying him forever. Well, our time is gone tonight, so we're going to have to stop here at this point, and Lord willing, we'll pick it up next Wednesday night here. Any questions that we have tonight? All right, we've got a wonderful day planned for you on Sunday. Powerful, powerful text on Sunday morning where these Romans are basically thinking, how come we haven't been to our church, Paul? How come you haven't been to our church? And Paul's going to answer that for him. And then we get into the first part of Zephaniah. It's rip-roaring, literally, when we get into Zephaniah Sunday night. So we'll have a great day of worship. Thank you for coming. Good night. The Lord bless you.